Good morning. This is lesson one of what now has become a two-part series on the uh, holiness of God. And actually, it may even get to three parts because um, Dave Slemmy has been looking at a text in First Peter on the same subject. So it looks to me as though God is providentially moving us in the direction of uh, studying His holiness. I have a friend who uh, decided some years ago that he wanted to buy a top-of-the-line sports car. And so he uh, was, at, as I remember the story, he was at the Porsche dealership and he was driving this uh, brand-new Porsche and uh, moving right along down Central Expressway. And the salesman made the mistake of saying this. There is only one other car in the world that starts uh, stops faster than this. As you will see on your screen, the result was the Acura NSX. That other car that stopped the fastest of all the cars in the world. One needs to be careful about speaking of being in second place. But when you speak of the holiness of God... There is no second place. There is no second place. No runner-up for the holiness of God. And so that is the subject that we want to address. Now, I'm going to confess something to you. I have an ulterior motive in this message. Last spring, Iron Sharpens Iron had a conference, and the theme was the holiness of God. And I had a couple of seminars on that subject, and uh, I was asked recently to write an article on uh, the subject of the holiness of God, and uh, so I decided that I would write what I would consider to be the the perfect sort of uh, um, first lesson in that, to sort of set set the stage for the holiness of God, and I'm going to try it out on you, I confess. That's what this is all about. And one of the things that, that I wanted to do, which I have not seen done in, in any of the major works on the holiness of God, is I'm trying to think my way through the Bible progressively as to how the Bible reveals the holiness of, of God uh, to us. But I want to start by uh, just focusing a minute on the importance of the holiness of God. When you read R.C. Sproul, who has a book entitled The Holiness of God, and by the way, it is a very, very uh, excellent book, uh, he says this. Here's the approach he takes. When you look in the Gospel of Matthew at at the the prayer that our Lord uh, offers there in Matthew chapter 6, the pattern for prayer, he prays, uh, hallowed be thy name. He's not saying your name is holy. He's saying and petitioning that God's name would be regarded as holy. And so Sproul makes the point that if you were to ask people what's the most important uh, priority in the Bible, you would probably get all kinds of answers. But if you took it from the lips of our Lord, it would be that the name of the Father would be regarded as holy. So I think we can agree with with him that the holiness of God 
is a major uh, subject. And then we, uh, we, we come to uh, J.I. Packer, who makes this comment in his book, uh, Knowing God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6.3, could be used as the motto text to sum up the theme of the whole Old Testament. The whole spirit of Old Testament religion was determined by the thought of God's holiness. And I think, again, we ought to be able to agree with that. And just to add some other biblical reasons... Uh, that text that, uh, that Dave may be speaking on next week. We are commanded to be holy. That was a text in Leviticus given to the Israelites. It is repeated now with respect to believers in our Lord Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1. Christians are destined to be holy. I'll just pick one text, Romans 8, 28 through 30, where it talks about that process uh, which God has every believer in, which ultimately ends up in their glorification. And I would say that that's clearly a reference to entering into uh, the holiness of God. C, it's the basis and motivation for our worship. If you really give serious thought to the holiness of God, you cannot do so without moving to worship. It is the basis for worship because worship is consideration of the worth of our God. And nothing summarizes the worth of our God more than that word holiness. And then, if you need extra incentive, that text in Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm focusing particularly on verse 14. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness... For without it, no one will see the Lord. I think when you, when you reflect on the book of Revelation and on the emphasis on the holiness of God, it is very clear there will be no unholiness in heaven. And therefore, holiness is a prerequisite for entering into the blessings of God in heaven. Now, here's where I started having my, my trouble. As I, was, as I was working through this subject, I, I, I just automatically expected that, that what I would see is a, a, a definition of holiness and then a, 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 an outline, a summary of why holiness was important. And when I looked at some of these major works, I, I found myself a bit disappointed. I read that statement from uh, J.I. Packer in, in uh, Knowing God where he talks about holiness being the sum total, as it were, of the emphasis of the Old Testament and of the Bible, that that sort of sums it all up. That book is a book that focuses on the attributes of God. And you know that it, it, uh, it has a, a variety of those attributes and will devote a chapter to each one of those. Not every attribute, but to many of the attributes of God. And by the way, as we approach Christmas season... I always say to people, dig that book out and read chapter 5 again on the Incarnation. It is one of the best chapters in that great book. But here's the thing that struck me. When I went and I found his statement on the importance of the holiness of God, I then turned to the table of contents, and would you not expect to find a chapter on the holiness of God after that short statement about how important it was? No chapter. 
on the holiness of God. And I'm saying to myself, man, don't let me down like this. Don't tell me how important it is and how great it is and then not even talk about it in a book that's about God and his attributes. Couldn't understand it. Then I got the R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God. And he was honest enough to say exactly why it was that he wasn't too eager to get to the subject either. It's, it's not until the third chapter of that book on the holiness of God that he comes to a definition. Now listen to what he says, R.C. Sproul. First words of chapter 3. Here we are already in the third chapter of this book, and I have still not defined what it means to be holy. I wish I could postpone this task even further. <laughs> the difficulties in defining holiness are vast. So that, all of a sudden, I see that statement says, Aha! Now I understand why people haven't dealt with the holiness of God the way I expected. And that is, people have real difficulty defining what holiness actually means. So, let me just ask you. You've got a piece of paper in front of you, or you should have, that has the notes. What would be a one or two or three word definition for holiness? If you were to write it down right now, what would your definition be? What would your definition be of the opposite of holiness? What's the antonym? I haven't used that since I was a school teacher. What's the difference, uh, the opposite of what holy means? And I think what you may begin to see is that there's a kind of murkiness in all of our minds. It, it, it sort of has a religious, pious kind of overtone. Uh, and, and we talk about people who are holier than thou, and that doesn't always convey the right picture. It's not quite so easy to really get your arms around that uh, whole area of the holiness of God and to, uh, to discern what it means. So here's what I'd like to do. What I want to do is, is make my attempt at defining the holiness of God. And, and by the way, there are other things we could talk about that are described as holy. Holy days, holy foods, holy vessels and all that. I, I, I'm going to step aside from all of that and I'm going to talk about the holiness of God uh, first and foremost. I want to try and define that. Then I want to, to look at how holiness is actually defined in the outworking of the Bible. And since I don't have a, an infinite amount of time or wisdom, I decided to land in the book of Exodus and just show you how Exodus portrays the holiness of God in ways that make a definition begin to come to life. And then I want to focus on the problem that holiness creates. God's holiness poses problems for sinful men. <laughs> And one of the things you discover is the further you go in the Old Testament, the more depth you see to the holiness of God. And the more you grasp the holiness of God, the more you're going to say to Isaiah, chapter 6, move over. Because the holiness of God forces us to say, woe is me. How does a sinful person enter into an intimate relationship with a holy God. What does the Old Testament have to say about that? And how does it seek to, to solve that problem? And then we'll talk about some areas of application. Again, uh, I'm going to leave us 
at the point of the incarnation. And here's what I want you to think about for two weeks out. Given what we're going to learn and given what you think you already know about the holiness of God, what must it have been like for the Son of God in all of his perfection to take on human flesh and to live in the midst of a fallen world with a bunch of fallen people? I cannot imagine anything more repulsive to one's holiness than the thought of having to dwell amongst men. That is one of the great mysteries to me of all time, is after I get through with the book, uh, the, the Old Testament, and look at the holiness of God, I cannot conceive of what I read in the Gospels about that holy God manifesting himself in the flesh amongst men. All right, let's move to a definition of the holiness of God. This is mine. You may or may not like it. But I, I, came, I came to several aspects of a definition. First, it's the incomparable, unrivaled excellence of God. The incomparable, unrivaled excellence of God. Now, I, when, I, when I used that word uh, I, and I typed it in on my computer, I thought to myself, is that really a word? And if it is, did I spell it right? Because sometimes I don't. So I went, all I did was highlight the word, clicked on it, and said, look up. Now, I, I know it's not pretty on your screen uh, when you get to that. Uh, one, more, one before that, Stephen, I think. Yes, that one. See, it's kind of messy, but that's just a screen capture of what came up. Look at these two statements that just a secular dictionary made on the word incomparable. Unequaled in quality. So excellent, outstanding, or unique as to have no equal. Ooh, hey, incomparable wasn't a bad word. And for bonuses, look at the next thing it says. Impossible to compare with something else. Impossible to compare with something else because there is no basis for a comparison. Is that not really true of the holiness of God? That's why I said there is no second place. There is no runner-up on holiness. It is something that belongs to God, to God exclusively, and nobody comes close. <clears throat> which makes the arrogance of Satan, as you read about his, I will be like the Most High. Wow, he obviously didn't have a grasp of the holiness of God. <clears throat> All right, so here's what uh, Tozier says about this, unrivaled. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, unattainable. So that's the problem. You see, when we talk about things that are abstract, and I think you would agree that the attributes of God would be abstract, then what we tend to say is, if we're going to describe the moon, 
The moon is round like an orange. And, and so we try to make abstractions clearer in people's mind by describing them in likeness to things that we do know and understand. The problem with holiness is there isn't any. No wonder people were avoiding definitions of holiness. Because you can't say God is like anything. That's what makes him unique and, and holy. That's uh, Tozier, page uh, 104, by the way. Secondly, the holiness of God is the unfathomable excellence of God. It's something that is absolutely beyond our ability to, uh, to comprehend. It is vastly beyond uh, anything that we can grasp, as, as Tozer points out. <clears throat> it is the collective excellence of God. Now, here's one that's very interesting. And, and I, 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 as I thought about this, I, I asked myself, am I crawling out there on a limb? I've been known to do that. And I found that guys that were really trustworthy were saying exactly the same thing as, as I was. That is, when you look at the holiness of God, you are not looking at a segment of what God is like. In all the other attributes, you talk about his holiness, his grace, his omniscience, his kindness, all those things, the, the things that, that you would find a chapter about in knowing God. You look at all those, and those are segments of who God is. His wrath, and yet his mercy. Seemingly opposing aspects. Holiness is the sum total of all of his attributes. The sum total. In other words, when you come through, it's like you're, you're adding up these things, and you have all these elements in your column, and God comes out perfect, 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 perfect on your column. Then at the end, if you want to describe that total, the total would be called holiness. Uh, here is uh, Kenneth Pryor, The Way of Holiness. He says, although for convenience, the holiness of God is often grouped in theological textbooks with his so-called moral attributes, such as righteousness, love, and mercy, it is rather a master attribute which includes all the others in their perfection. Here's what uh, Sproul says. The tendency is to add the idea of holy to this long list of attributes as one attribute among many. But when the word holy is applied to God, it does not signify one single attribute. On the contrary, God is called holy in a general sense. The word is used as a synonym for his deity. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is. And there again is part of the reason why we have difficulty in narrowing down our definition. Because the definition is purposely broad and general because it describes all that God is. And not just a particular facet of, of what uh, God is. I would add to that, it is the awe-inspiring excellence of God. Now, we see that over and over again, but nowhere better than our text in Isaiah. <laughs> when one is confronted 
with the reality of who God is in his holiness, the right response is fear, reverence. And that's why Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm an unclean man. Over and over that is the case um, that we see in the scriptures. And uh, I want to do this last one. Now I am out on a little bit of a limb. The holiness of God and the glory of God. I think there's a very close relationship between those two expressions, the glory of God and the holiness of God. And if you would look back in Isaiah 6, verse 3, you see how close they are. The one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, okay, here's where, here, that's, there's nothing out on the limb about that yet. I, I've always puzzled when I've read Exodus 33 and 34. You remember, that's where the golden calves, Exodus 32, and God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of all these people. And, and Moses says, but you're God, and you made a covenant. Well, of course, God knew that, and so God says, all right, I'm not going to destroy them. Now the question is, will God actually, you know, go with them? And there's this long discussion that goes back and forth about God going up with his people. And he basically says in chapter 33, if I went with you, I'd kill you on the way. I am so holy and you are so sinful and stiff-necked, it just isn't going to (laughs) work. And you can understand from Exodus 32 why that would be the case. God finally says, all right, Moses, I'll go with you. And Moses then says, show me thy glory. And God then responds this way. Verse 20 of Exodus 33. You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. The Lord said, here's a place by me. You will station yourself on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and will cover you with my hand when I pass by. And then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now, we know that God cannot be seen, correct? So we have to say that this is a metaphor, this is an analogy of what's taking place. But his request was to see God's glory. The answer to that request comes in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Listen to what God says. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, We'd love to stop there. But by no means does he leave the guilty unpunished. Now, here's the way I'm inclined to look at that. I believe that Moses, in asking to see the glory of God, if I'm correct in my definition of holiness, is asking to see the holiness of God. In effect, they're the same thing. His holiness, who he is, is his glory. The reality is that is too much for any human being to bear. 
in their sinful condition, including Moses and apparently Isaiah. It's too much to bear. So that this analogy of seeing God's backside when God doesn't have one is really saying, you will see part of me. Isn't that, isn't that kind of the essence of it? You won't see all of me, you'll see part of me. Now, when you come to chapter 34 and he's describing his attributes, the focus is on what dimension of God's character. Hello. <laughs> his mercy and grace, isn't it? And brother, is that important when it comes to Israel's condition before God. But he doesn't leave out, he doesn't emphasize, but he doesn't leave out the dimension of the fact that he is also just. Here's what I'm suggesting. When Moses asked to see God's glory, he is really asking to see a revelation of all that God is, which is his attributes. He is asking, therefore, to see in full the holiness of God. And God says, that's unbearable for you. So you will see a partial revelation of who I am. And that's why what you see described in Exodus 34 is not a full listing of God's attributes or the ability to somehow behold the glory that is associated with those. So it seems to me that this sort of scaled down, reduced list of attributes is those attributes which are most applicable to Israel and Moses at this moment in time. But the reality is, because of God's holiness, no one could bear the whole list or the whole vision. Now, you may not buy that, and I don't fault you for it if you don't. But it helps me, this whole concept of God's holiness being almost synonymous and interchangeable with his glory makes all kinds of sense to me. And it also adds one more element to the importance of the subject of holiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, eating, drinking, whatever, do all to the glory of God. Our life is to be governed and guided by who God is. And God is holy. And the display of that is God's glory, is to God's glory. Okay, now let's talk about how the holiness of God is revealed in the Old Testament. And I'm going to just narrow my, my frame of reference down to the book of Exodus because we obviously don't have time to play out every book. I would suggest to you, however, that when you come to a concept as abstract, as difficult to grasp as God's holiness, it makes sense to me that God would define his holiness in terms of his actions and his words throughout the Old Testament, and that the further we go in the Old Testament, the closer we get to the New, the more we're going to see what that looks like I'm saving up my thunder for the next phase. But when we come to the incarnation of Christ, then all of a sudden, this thing that was veiled for Old Testament saints, now we are looking in the face, Paul says, of Christ. And the wonder of what we see in our Lord is amazing. And 
It's a glorious thing, but notice there's not all the razzle-dazzle and splendor, save a few things like the transfiguration. So it must be the attributes of God that are manifest in the person of our Lord Jesus. Okay, that's a sample for later. Let's look at the book of Exodus. Remember, the Israelites are in captivity. They're in bondage in Egypt. They're being oppressed. And uh, Moses has uh, already committed murder and fled. And he's been taking care of sheep for, for uh, nigh on to 40 years. And while he's tending those sheep, he sees this burning bush. And it's really just a curiosity to him as it would be to us. What in the world is with this? And so as he draws near to that bush... God says to him, take off your shoes, <laughs> for you're standing on holy ground. It's actually the first time that, root, that word is used in, in the Old Testament, and that's why I chose to go there. I think the concept of God's holiness and of a holy place is seen perhaps in the Garden of Eden, certainly in Genesis 28 at Bethel. But this is a place where God says, it is holy. There is something special and apart from that. And if Moses doesn't want to believe that, at least he's got that visual aid of here's something that keeps burning and doesn't burn up. That's pretty, pretty amazing, wonderful sight. God then gives Moses his instructions and after a considerable amount of debate, and remember, he basically says to God, well, what if I get to, to, to Pharaoh and, and, and he says, uh, who is God? Who sent you? God says, tell him, I am sent you. There's something unique about that. So when we come to chapter 5 and verse 2, Moses now lays the claim out before Pharaoh. Let my people go that they may serve me. Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice. Or we might put it in these terms, paraphrased. So what's so special about your God? We got all kinds of gods already. What's so special about him that I'm supposed to follow this, to me, unknown God? Why should I obey him? We've got our gods. Which, of course, sets the stage for the battle of the gods that takes place. And that's why you see in Exodus chapter 12... And verse 12, that this whole encounter is described as a battle of God with the gods. In other words, if God is who he is exclusively without rival, without runners up, then this has huge implications and God is going to demonstrate the gods of Egypt are no gods. And so it says in Exodus 12, 12, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. You remember, what's that movie that says, you know, he, his, he has his five minutes and I want to be president. <laughs> and then the president says, I am the president. That's what God is saying. I am God. And I'm executing judgment on these gods. And so, as we've said before, those things, the insects, the frogs, and whatever, seemingly were the symbols for the gods of Egypt. And God literally mocked them as he defeated them, demonstrating that he was God alone. Then you come to Exodus chapter 15, 
And this is after the, the Israelites have passed through the Red Sea. The sea is closed in on the Egyptian army. And so as I view it in my mind's eye, here they are standing on the shore of the Red Sea and there are pieces of, of, uh, of wood perhaps from the chariots that are floating up on the beach, dead horse bodies uh, and dead bodies of soldiers floating up on the shore as Israel sings this song and they say in verse 2, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Horse and rider he is hurled into the sea. Now look at verse 11. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee majestic in holiness? Awesome in praises, working wonders. And then they go on to say, In thy strength thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. That is, that place that he has set apart for them, the land of Canaan, they now see that as something accomplished. If God can get them out of Egypt, can destroy the armies of Egypt, and, and do all that he's done, then these people up there in the land of Canaan are no problem. And that's what it says. Verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble, anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia, Edom, and so on. You will bring them into that land, he says, and the people say. So there is a declaration of the holiness of God by the people of God as they look at what God has done to magnify his name and his holiness. It is probably noteworthy to take a look at Exodus chapter 18 and verse 11. That is the, the encounter that Moses has with Jethro, his father-in-law, and I find it significant that this to me seems to be his affirmation of faith. And he says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they were dealt with, when they were dealt proudly against the people. In other words, you really made them look like what they are. No gods at all. Even Jethro sees the holiness of God in what he has done. Now, flowing out of that, we get to Exodus chapter 19, and in particular, verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession, my special treasure. That's where we, the King James, the old King James used to talk about my peculiar possession, and, and we, we've got that word peculiar kind of filed away under the weird category. Peculiar means unique, and that's very close to the word holy. A unique treasured possession. And he says, among all the peoples for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the Exodus manifested the holiness of God and brought into being the existence of the people of God as a holy nation. Now Israel belonged to God and because God was holy, they also must conform to his holiness by what they do. It's no wonder that Exodus 20 follows. Exodus 20 is where he gives the law and sets it down. Now, when you think about that, now in the light of Exodus 32, 
God's given the law. He's, he's given it to Moses. They haven't got the, the thing on stone yet, but, but it's, it's been given. Here Israel worships the golden calf. And all this event takes place, and you say, oh my goodness, here is a holy God and an unholy people. How is this going to work? It's no wonder that God threatens to destroy them. And then you come to uh, th- that whole event in Exodus 33 and 34 where God manifests his glory to Moses. Moses petitions once more in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 9. I pray now, if I have found favor in thy sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst. Even though the people are so obstinate and do not pardon our, uh, and thou do not pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as thine own possession. What is the, what is the next thing that happens? I've always been puzzled by the fact that now in verses 10 and following, you have the Mosaic Covenant in effect repeated. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I already got that back earlier in the book of Exodus. Why am I getting the Mosaic Covenant told to me all over again? Here's the answer. The Mosaic Covenant is a provisional gift of God whereby He may dwell in the midst of a sinful people. So what do you have? Barricades. You have the barricade of outside the camp. So people who are unclean, they stay outside the camp. Sort of yellow tape. You have the barricade that goes around the tabernacle, the fence. And then you have the barricade between the holy place and the holy of uh, of holies. You have the barricade of the priesthood, who are sort of intermediaries between God and men. The high priest. All of that was God's way of, of setting boundaries so that he could for a time live in the midst of, of this sinful people. The sad part of it is, as you know, the problem that comes in point four. The problem of a holy God dwelling in the midst of sinful men. We're back to Isaiah chapter six. When men see God for who he is in all of his holiness, they recognize the depth of their sin and the degree to which they have fallen short. And so the question is, how can that possibly be? And you see examples of of this failure. The rest of the Old Testament from Exodus on is a repeated iteration of the way in which men have failed to keep the covenant by which they had this limited access to God. And by the way, limited though it was, God spoke of it as being so near with respect to the other religions. I think that's Deuteronomy chapter 4. So let's just look at an example of, of uh, how sinfulness interferes with men who disregard God's holiness. Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. You remember the Israelites are out of water again. They're grousing and they're grumbling. And God says, speak to the rock. Speak to the rock and it will bring forth water. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the rock that followed them was Christ. Here's Moses. He's got his staff in his hand. Listen, I understand. I understand Moses far better than God. He's got that stick and whack, whack. He hits that rock. He wished every Israelite were on that rock. 
He is mad as a wet hen. What does God say in, in uh, Numbers chapter 20? What is, the, what is the essence of the sin? Numbers chapter 20 and verse 12. And it's repeated a number of times. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you will not bring this assembly into the land. He repeats that several times. Every time he tells Moses they're not going into the land, he says to him, you did not regard me as holy. Think about it. One of the greatest men in all of the Old Testament fails with regard to esteeming God in his holiness and reflecting that by the way in which he lived his life. Uzzah, here's a man who is sincerely seeking to take the ark that's been captured and now take it to its proper place so men can worship God, and they stick it on an ox cart rather than having the rails stuck through the rings and men carry it like they would a a coffin uh, so that it doesn't uh, collapse or whatever, and the, the, the cart somehow hits a pothole, and it looks like either the ark is going to turn over or fall out or whatever. And Uzzah, in all sincerity, reaches out, and God strikes him dead. Because, God said, in effect, he did not regard the holiness that that ark represented in the presence of men. And you're saying again, here's a good man, rightly motivated, I think, in some ways. But his problem was he could not live up to the standard that God's holiness required. Nadab and Abihu, I won't go to. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 19. One more illustration of the inability of men to live according to God's standards as prescribed in the Mosaic Covenant. Joshua 24, 19. Then Joshua said to the people, uh, he basically has already said, choose you this day whom you will serve. They said, oh, we'll serve the Lord. He says to them, you will not be able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will know, he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. And they said to Joshua, no, 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 we'll serve the Lord. He said, you are witnesses against yourself. Even at the high water mark of Israel's corporate life, the book of Joshua, The reality is nobody can live up to the standard of God's holiness. That's the great dilemma that while the Old Testament reveals progressively how holy our God is, it reveals progressively to men how wicked and sinful we are. And so you you end up with this dilemma. How are we going to get out of this thing? And look at the provisions that God has made. First of all, he's made the Mosaic Covenant That's sort of the General Motors they did at first. That little dinky spare tire that was pathetic. Some of you still have them. But but it's that little tire that'll get you to the gas station, and that's about it. Uh, it's It's just a temporary provision for a broken part. Bad tire. 
And, and uh, so God gave them that, and you see that uh, emphasized when you look at Exodus 34, verse 9 and following, after this event where Moses sees God's glory. But in the midst of that, there is the promise of divine cleansing. There is not only that temporary provision, which Israel persistently fails to keep, but there is the promise beyond that temporary provision that God is going to bring about cleansing. That's what Isaiah 6 is about. Isaiah says, I am an, I am an unclean man, but he is cleansed, not by his efforts to try harder. He is cleansed by God. It's a picture of the cleansing that will come about through the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's played out in much fuller terms in Isaiah in chapter 52 and 53, is it not? Now you see the coming of Messiah who will bear the sins of his people. Ezekiel chapter 36 speaks as well of the cleansing. But you then come to that next element that speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit where he says over and over, I will write my law upon your hearts. I'll take your hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. And interestingly enough, folks, it is God's Spirit who will do this, and he is described as the Holy Spirit. God will produce holiness by cleansing men from their sins and by the work of the Spirit that energizes the hearts of men to love his law, to love his righteousness, to love the standards that he sets, and therefore to carry them out. And that's what you see in those texts and many more. So let's talk about some implications very quickly. God's holiness is the baseline for evangelism. One of the things that's happening today in, in our pluralistic, crazy thinking day is that we keep trying to change the standards. It seems to me that we have to stick with the Bible on this, folks. If we go with any other standard than the holiness of God, men are going to look a whole lot better than they are. And they want to believe that. And so if we're going to be effective in evangelism, we better stick to, we better stick to the holiness of God because that is the standard by which men's sins are exposed. And by the way, it is the cure for self-righteousness. You look at the smugness of the Pharisees and they think of all the stuff they've done and people are saying, man, those guys are at the top of the heap. No, they weren't. When compared with the holiness of God, the best efforts of the best people are shown up for what they are, and that is unclean. So evangelism begins with an awareness of sin, and sin begins by an understanding, a grasp, of the holiness of God. And therefore, the holiness of God is the answer to the dilemma of pluralism. <laughs> pluralism says, yeah, we've got our God, and you've got your God, and these, they've got their gods, and whatever. Not if you believe your God's the holy God. There aren't anybody. There, there's no second place. No runners up. That's why God says, do not serve any other God than me. I claim the exclusive right to be worshipped and served. Other people can claim they've got their gods, but he is no they are no rival to the God who is holy. 
God's holiness is the motivation and the content of our worship. We've been observing the Lord's Supper here and worshiping every Sunday morning for 34 years. Some people would say, well, you know, when you, when you do it that often, you just lose something. So this is kind of repetitious and kind of boring. We have all eternity to worship God, and you know why? You know why it's not going to get dull or boring? Because God's holiness is so infinite, so bottomless in its depth, that all eternity will not exhaust the riches and the depths of who God is in His holiness. That's what we read in Revelation, isn't it? Holy, holy, holy. It says there. It's the holiness of God that inspires our revelation. If our worship is wimpy and weak, then I'll tell you where we're failing. We're failing in our grasp of the holiness of God. That's where worship begins, and that's where worship never ends. Let me stop right there by simply saying this. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you need to know that God is holy. His standard is the standard he himself sets. And no man will meet that no matter how hard you try, no matter what good you do. The only righteousness that will save is the righteousness that is God's. His holiness is offered to us. He bore our sins on the cross of Calvary in the person of Jesus. He offers to make us holy in him. And that's what we're all about. The holiness of God proclaiming it to lost sinners, worshiping His holiness every week and looking forward to an eternity when we'll see Him in the fullness of who He is. Father, thank You for the Lord Jesus. Thank You for uh, the fact that You are a holy God without rival. What an amazing God. What a majestic God You are. Thank You for our opportunity this morning in our worship time to celebrate that. May we never lose sight and may we always pursue to know more of you as the God who is infinitely holy. In Jesus' name, amen.